once again, we are coming to you live as live can get here on TNT WCW Monday Nitro on the heels of Slamboree. And what a night we had last night. What a night we're going to have tonight. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Bischoff, along with Bobby the Brain Heaton. As you can see, no, Steve McMichael. And for very good reason, as we speak, Mongo teaming up with Kevin Green, his number one draft choice, as he put it, in serious training as they prepare to meet the challenge put out by Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. We're going to talk about it more in just a, a minute, Bobby Heaton, right now. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 Years of Nitro, our week-by-week -week breakdown of WCW's flagship show, where each episode is reviewed on the 20th anniversary of its airing. As always, I am your host, Tim Root, and with me this time is our own Mongo McMichael. It's John Amantorp. Reunited and it feels so... <laughs> eh. Dave Amantorp is on assignment, uh, much like Hogan had the Zodiac infiltrate the Dungeon of Doom as his spy. I've sent, <laughs> I've sent Dave to infiltrate other podcasts and bring them down from the inside before uh, a glorious return very soon. Uh, so this <laughs> week it's me and John, and we are here on May 20th, 1996 for Nitro, which is emanating live from the Civic Center in Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, tonight is a 90-minute show. Which uh, was not promoted previously on Nitro. Uh, it may have been mentioned on a, you know, your worldwide, your pros, your Saturday nights, but uh, no Nitro previously mentioned that this was going to be a ninety-minute show. Yeah, uh, I don't think Slamboree did the night before either. So not that, that I was a noticed. Surprise to me. Uh, speaking of Slamboree, let's go through those pay-per-view results real quick. But I suppose before we do that, I should, as always, plug our social media channels because you can. Like us on Facebook at 20 Years of Nitro. You can follow us on Twitter at 20 Years of Nitro. You can email the show at 20 Years of Nitro at gmail.com. You can find us on piledriverwrestling.net in the OSW podcast section. You can always find us on freaking awesome network.net at the freaking awesome network. And, uh, you know, I, I don't normally say this, a lot of podcasts do, but uh, it would really be nice if you would uh, hop onto your iTunes. And go ahead and write us a little review. Uh, you know, it's, it helps you get your podcast noticed more in the little, you know, if somebody's perusing the wrestling podcast, we'll be up there a little more. Plus, uh, I, I have a very fragile ego, and I like hearing positive things. <laughs> if you're going to write a negative review... Uh, keep it to yourself. Yeah, keep it. <laughs> as Tommy Wiseau once said... Oh, no, as Tommy Wiseau wrote, uh, but it was delivered by Juliet Danielle in the <laughs> fabulous movie The Room... Uh, keep your comments in your pocket. <laughs> uh, speaking of the pay-per-view, which we were like 10 minutes ago, but really aren't anymore. Oh, this whole segment's gotten off to an awkward start, thanks <laughs> to me. Uh, Hawk and Booker T versus Lex Luger and Animal ended in a double countout. There's like a million matches, so I'm not going to talk <laughs> in detail about these. I'm just going to blow through them. Public Enemy defeated uh, Benoit and Sullivan. Rick Steiner and the Booty Man defeated Craig Pittman and Scott Steiner. VK Wall Street and Hacksaw defeated the Blue Bloods, uh, Stephen Regal and Lord, uh, Squire David Taylor. Dirty Dick Slater and the Earl of Eaton defeated Disco Inferno and Alex Wright. DDP and the Barbarian defeated Meng and Hugh Morris. Fire and Ice defeated Big Bubba, uh, who was now dressed as a biker, so that, <laughs> was, that was new, and Stevie Ray. 
Ric Flair and Randy Savage defeated Arn Anderson and Eddie Guerrero. Uh, they Flair and Savage or Flair and Anderson spent most of the match beating up Randy Savage. Uh, Eddie Guerrero occasionally would try to get in there and break it up, or Savage would wrestle Arn for a bit while Flair stood on the outside <laughs> pretending to be a tag team partner. Uh, but in the end, Arn would uh, DDT Eddie Guerrero, allowing Flair to get the pin on him, and then they would beat up Randy some more. Dean Malenko defeated Brad Armstrong to retain the WCW Cruiserweight Championship, which he won from Shinjiro Otani on an episode of WCW Worldwide, which aired the day before the pay-per-view, so Ooh. just two days ago on the 18th. Dirty Dick Slater and the Earl of Eaton then defeated VK Wall Street and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Public Enemy defeated Flair and Savage, who fought each other during the entrance and never really even made it to the ring. DDP and the Barbarian defeated Rick Steiner and the Booty Man. Conan retained the United States title against Jushin Thunder Liger. Diamond Dallas Page de then defeated the Barbarian, Earl Robert Eaton, Ice Train, Scott Norton, Rocco Rock, Johnny Grunge, and Dirty Dick Slater in the Battle Bowl match. And in your main event, the Giant retained his WCW World Heavyweight title against Sting uh, after Sting was accidentally, or was it, mm. knocked out by Lex Luger, his best friend and tag team partner. To start off Nitro, uh, Bischoff points out that Mongo is not there this week as he is off training as it was revealed in a promo segment last night that he is going to be tagging with his pal Kevin Green to take on Ric Flair and Arn Anderson at the Great American Bash. The segment is terrible <laughs> um, because Flair comes out and challenges Mongo to this match and says Mongo can pick anyone he wants. Uh, and he makes it the, the sort of story is that Flair believes that Mongo is going to choose a another retired player. Right, like a really old guy. Right. And then he's shocked when it's Kevin Green. <laughs> I guess Flair wasn't watching Nitro last week when Mongo flat out said that he would probably partner with uh, <laughs> Kevin Green yeah. in this match coming up. Like, it, the crowd is dead for it. They, they don't cheer at all for Kevin Green, and it's been revealed already. I don't know why they act like it's supposed to be a surprise. It's, uh, you know, WCW, I guess. It reminds me a lot of, uh, like, the Survivor Series 2010 event, I think, when you had Rock and Cena teaming up against The Miz and R-Truth. Yeah. Where they announced it on the website, like, you know, three weeks before the event, and then, like, a week after that, John Cena reveals Rock as his mystery partner <laughs> when, like, the cat's already kind of out of the bag. Nice. Yeah. Bischoff uh, humble brags about being at the Super Bowl last year and watching Kevin Green play in that game. Uh, Bobby says that the only bowl that Green and Mongo will see is the toilet as they throw <laughs> up after losing. <laughs> after that, Fire and Ice make their entrance to take on the Steiner brothers, and we learn that the Macho Man is banned uh, from the arena tonight due to Ric Flair uh, having a scheduled match against Eddie Guerrero. So with Flair in the building, uh, the WCW Executive Committee has banned the Macho Man from the arena. Yeah, and I think this is Macho Man's like second time in less than a year getting banned from Nitro, so we want to attack Ric Flair. It's the second time in two weeks. Oh, geez, <laughs> Yeah, okay. he, w he wasn't allowed in last okay, week, actually. Okay, okay. Uh, to start off the match, Ice Train and Scott Steiner start, and Scott gets an arm drag. They lock up, and Scott powers the big man into the corner and tries for a hip toss, but Train blocks it and then another before hitting his own. Ice Train locks on a side headlock, which Scott escapes before running into an Ice Train shoulder tackle. Train comes off the ropes, but this time Steiner finally does manage that hip toss. Steiner throws in a clothesline for good measure uh, before a pin attempt gets a two count. Steiner whips Ice Train into the corner, but his attempt at a splash runs into another shoulder tackle. Ice Train gets a big belly-to-belly -belly for a two count. Steiner then hits his own belly-to-belly -belly and hypes the crowd up before prompting Ice Train to tag in Scott Norton. 
Scott responds by sending in Rick. The dog fa- Is there a better nickname in wrestling than the dog-faced gremlin? I don't think so. That, there's no other like industry in the world where you can get a nickname. Maybe, I guess maybe like in football, you get like just a nickname that yeah. talks about how ugly you are. Yeah, like it starts off dog-faced and you're like, okay, that part sounds insulting, but it's mm-hmm. a nickname, so the second half will probably be nice, and that is gremlin. Like it's worse <laughs> than dog-faced. It's, it's fitting, though. <laughs> oh, it's, it's very it's fitting. It's hard to describe, but it's very fitting. <laughs> Norton gets in some uh, punches and elbows. He's got Rick in the corner, and he's just smashing into him going, bah, bah. <laughs> and uh, actually, I, I've got a little audio clip of how that sounds. Because it was indeed good. Well, one of the things I liked was that interview when Scott Steiner said, hey, I'm going to be the older brother, but I'm the bigger brother. Norton then whips Rick into a corner, but Rick dodges the following splash attempt. Rick tries for a roll-up, but Norton rolls through it and pops up to hit a big clothesline. Norton gets a big second rope splash, but doesn't cover and looks dumb. He, th- he then hits a shoulder <laughs> tackle and still no pin, which Bobby rips him for. Norton gets a couple clotheslines, but tries for a third, which Rick dodges, sending him into the ropes. Norton grabs the rope to stop his momentum, and Rick grabs him from behind for a big German suplex. A clothesline gets a two count, and Rick decides to bring in Scott. Scotty hits Norton in the head a few times before hitting a dragon suplex, and Norton rolls to the outside. Steiner... Uh, Scott Steiner, that is, goes up to the top rope and jumps down to the floor with an elbow to Norton's head after a very scary moment uh, where Scott Steiner almost slips and falls off the ropes. Oh, yeah. It, Yeah, he. it was a last-second recovery, and thank <laughs> God he did, or uh, the story of his career may have been very different. <laughs> back in the ring, after some back and forth, Norton hits a Samoan drop that manages to drop Steiner right in his arm. And I'm not really sure whose fault that was between the two of them, but it looked painful. Yeah, it looks rough, and you know Norton's a big guy, too. Right. So not the kind of guy you want landing on you when you don't land flat. Norton pretty much immediately goes for a two-count, and for some reason Bischoff starts getting on his case saying that Norton could have had the three if he'd been, quote, paying attention. <laughs> I don't know what that—he hit a move and then immediately went for a pin, uh, so I don't know why Bischoff's kind of burying him a little bit here, other than, like we've mentioned on the show before— uh, Kevin Sullivan has said in a few episodes of his podcast that Bischoff just did not care for Scott Norton. Which is weird because you would think, especially since Bischoff was really big on, like, promoting WCW internationally, that, right. like, having, like, a, I don't know, was he, like, the, he was an IWGP champion, I think, for some time. I don't think it was yet here, but I know he was still a big player in Japan. Oh, yeah, by he's this huge time. So you would think that, especially, like, when they do crossover things with, like, bringing in the Great Muda and bringing in luchadors and things like that, You'd really think Scott Norton would be a bigger priority for him, but he obviously, for one reason or another, isn't. Even though, you know, he's in the ring, you know, one of the better big guys they have. Oh, absolutely, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Norton tags in Ice Train, who's pretty much immediately suplexed by Scott Steiner. Steiner then tags in Rick, who comes in and ends up missing a clothesline before he and Ice Train hit each other with clotheslines, sending both to the mat for the standing ten count. Both men are up pretty quick, and Scott Norton bullies Rick over to the fire and ice corner where he tags in Train. They hit a bad double shoulder tackle where <laughs> it looks like Norton gets, like, none of it. Like, it's all ice train. They're just not standing in the right spot. In general, I thought Scott Norton looked really out of his element in this match. Um, I'm kind of surprised because, in general, I've liked Norton in his appearances here, but yeah. he just kind of seems lost this match. He doesn't. He seems like often he's in the wrong place or he's, he's just a step off and... Uh, Ice Train, you know, has a lot less experience and is kind of a lot less um, heralded as like a potential uh-huh. star. But I thought Ice Train acquitted himself nicely, and Norton looked 
a little bit lost. Yeah, and with Norton, it might just be a thing where, like, the Steiner brothers, their their whole thing is that they pick you up and suplex you all over right. the place. And Norton, maybe, I mean, although, like, when they would, like, German suplex him, you know, he would get some pretty good air on it and things like that. But I think he was maybe just a little off being the biggest guy in the match, but selling power moves that could by be. the Steiners. Yeah. Rick is knocked to the outside, and Ice Train comes off the ring apron with a double axe handle. Train then body slams Rick onto the mats as we see in a wide shot that Norton and Scott Steiner are also brawling inside the ring. Train then body slams him onto the mat as we see in a wide shot that Norton and Scott Steiner are also brawling outside the ring. The camera then cuts to Norton hitting a shoulder breaker on Scott Steiner while in the background Rick is scoop slamming Ice Train. Nick Patrick calls for the bell as both teams have been counted out. This doesn't stop from the pairs from brawling uh, with Rick and Ice Train fighting their way to the backstage area as my dog rummages around the goddamn laundry <laughs> room here where we're recording. Uh, I I always think it's funny well, when two guys brawl while walking to a destination. Right. It's like a they're just weird. they're purposely walking and punching each other. Mm-hmm. It's it always looks there's no way to make it not look awkward. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird and like now that you mention it, like um Bischoff kind of being hard on Scott Norton here is especially weird because and uh, I, I say this not really remembering what happens going forward, but I imagine there's some kind of return match in the cards with these two teams. And even, you if, think you, so, yeah. even if it's just uh, like a vehicle to put over the Steiner brothers, you'd think you'd want to get Norton and Ice Train you know, as much credibility as possible. So it's a little weird that he is pretty critical of Scott Norton. And they're not even like the heels in this match. You know, I think they're they're still basically baby faces at this point. So Yeah, they're... Yeah, at worst, they're tweeners. Like, they certainly yeah. don't cheat. They don't have attitudes. I mean, Norton's kind of angry looking, but Ice Train balances it out. Because Ice Train, as I mentioned uh, in his debut on Nitro, contrary to his name, he looks like just a big, happy, bubbly guy. <laughs> like, there's nothing icy about his demeanor whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and it is, yeah, that's weird. But, I mean, it, I guess that speaks to their versatility a little bit in that they're big guys that don't necessarily have to be heels, but mm-hmm. work as them. But again, that, that all all that kind of makes Bishop, you know, the babyface announcer being critical of Norton kind of weird. But we uh we then get to see Nick Patrick telling Norton that the match is over, to which uh, Scott Norton just stupidly yells, "Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, you you all been outside the ring for a minute and a half. Why do you think <laughs> your partner just is in the locker room? He didn't like <laughs> I stranger in the shower. <laughs> Bischoff then tosses us to commercial with Flair and Eddie promised next. Uh, in the commercial, we get a WCW magazine ad uh, that promises that we're going to be going inside the demented mind of the giant. And this seemed like a good time to uh, bring closure to a story that we mentioned on the show before. Uh, I raised the question to Dave one time uh, whether he thought that, or whether you know either of us thought that the writers of the magazine actually interview these guys, or if they just write in character. Sure. Since what's the point of go? You know, they're all playing characters, so... Why sure. not just have creative do it? Um, so I thought, why not take the question to the man himself? And I asked uh, Vince Russo. Uh, and I'm just trying to see in my inbox here where I have it. Yeah, Vince Russo, you know, famously being a guy that was hired by the WWF to work exclusively on their magazine. But he would do all these, like, fantasy matchups, you know. Like, like the one I remember most is he did, like, the Supreme Fighting Machine, comma, versus Rocky Balboa in, a, <laughs> like, an MMA fight. Nice. Um, but, yeah, he would eventually, you know, um, work his way to the creative team, things like that, but um, definitely started out in magazines and I think, you know, had pretty pretty good resume. As 
part. So so I bought some stuff from uh, old Vince Russo on eBay. So we had been emailing a little bit about payment and shipping. He had made some, or I think his kid had like listed some stuff wrong with the shipping, and it was making a whole headache. So we had emailed a bunch. Mm-hmm. So once it was all sorted, I emailed him that very question. Do you actually go to the source, or would you just make it up since it's, you know, this isn't the New York Times. Sure. So here's his response. Hey, man, before I started with the magazine, they used to make everything up 100%. By the way, everything up is in caps because it's Vince Russo. <laughs> right, So, right. Of course, you know, uh-huh. it's hard not to, like, hear it in that, like, <laughs> hey, you know, with that accent. Once I got there, we would go to the source 100% of the time. No more making up fiction. <laughs> he so says believe about these that, characters. Believe that if you want to. Uh, I, I don't know that I believe that he ushered in this new... Um, period of journalistic integrity. The 1995 reality era. <laughs> but since I'd brought up the question on the show before, I thought uh, I would share the former editor of WWE Magazine, uh, his take on you it. You bookended it, if you will. <laughs> Out comes Eddie to his generic babyface music. Uh, announcers talk about Mongo and Kevin Green and training. And indeed, they will spend most of the following 20-minute match discussing <laughs> uh, Ric Flair and Randy Savage and Mongo and Kevin Green. It is a huge topic. I mean, Ric Flair is in the match. I get it. But this is, you know, they, they spend most of the match just f- talking fuck all about it. Man. <laughs> Flair is out with Woman and Liz. Uh, he's in his green robe this week, which we mentioned before is our least favorite of Ric Flair's robes. Uh, he gets a ton of pyro, though, this week. A lot of multicolored fireworks going off behind him. Uh, and he's out uh, with the women who do their half turn. Uh, so they don't fully turn around, but they do turn around and just kind of show their bums and then turn back around. There you go. We see the crowd booing and Heenan, uh, clearly in response to a not very attractive woman shown on screen, audibly shudders before going, oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> Bischoff just no-sells it completely. Bobby's just ragging on ugly ladies in the crowd. <laughs> Bischoff explains that this match is happening because Eddie is hot over Arn. Uh, his teammate in the Lethal Lottery, betraying him instead to help Flair advance in the tournament. One would think that the natural match would be Eddie versus Arn, uh, but I'm not complaining about Eddie versus Flair. And Arn is actually in the main event, challenging for the title. Um, I don't know how he earned that title shot, but whatever. <laughs> um, and and we previously saw, I want to say it was in November of last year, a Flair-Eddie match on Nitro. That was very good. Uh, it ended with Eddie passing out in the figure four. Um, so that match was good. I have, you know, high hopes for this one to start off with Flair looks into the camera and taunts the macho man as uh, a bit as his music builds to its beautiful crescendo. (laughs) Eddie and Flair lock up to start, uh, before Eddie takes Flair down with a side headlock takeover. Flair pushes him down to a pin position for barely a one count. So Eddie keeps the headlock on, but brings both men to their feet. They walk over near a corner and Eddie walks the second rope and flips around Flair, keeping the headlock on and bringing both men to the mat once more. Eddie lands on top of the Nature Boy, and Randy Anderson counts to a two before Flair lifts his shoulder from the canvas. Flair tilts Eddie over like he did earlier, and this time gets a two count, so Eddie responds uh, this time the same as the first by bringing them up to their feet without letting go of the hold. So he basically gone about a minute and a half with a headlock locked in as they're moving all around the ring. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, and it's classic, like, Flair steamboat sort Absolutely. of psychology with, you know, guy getting to move on and Flair trying five different ways to counter it, and that's good stuff. Flair manages to push Eddie to the ropes and finally escape the headlock thanks to the rope break. Flair then gets in a punch followed by a shoulder tackle. Both men come off the ropes and Eddie leapsfrog Flair before planting a dropkick. 
He takes Flair to the mat with another side headlock takeover for two. He works the headlock as Bobby, uh, who we've seen in the past champion Eddie, says that Eddie has competed all over the world and has a great one-loss record and that he absolutely can beat Flair. Uh, Bobby, for some reason, really has taken a shine to Eddie Guerrero, really goes out of his way to put him over and say, you know, before the World War III Battle Royal, uh, which Guerrero was in, he was, you know, Bobby specifically pointed out, like, Eddie Guerrero could come out of this Battle Royal as the new champion. He really, really seems to like Eddie and, and just works very hard to get him over. Yeah, and it's probably a combination of um, seeing that Eddie was, I mean, he was just hot stuff, you know, because he was so good, but also maybe just hedging his bets a little bit on Eddie being, you know, a big player <laughs> moving sure. forward and that kind of fitting with the brain persona, too. Flair escapes the headlock thanks to an elbow to the gut. He hits another shoulder tackle and comes off the ropes again, but Eddie takes him down with a drop toe hold before slapping the headlock back on. Flair manages to maneuver Eddie into a corner where he gets in some punches and chops. Eddie comes back with some punches of his own, and soon they are trading punches and chops until Eddie goes up for a 10-punch spot, though he only gets a quick five before he climbs back down and lays in some chops instead. Bischoff starts alluding to the locker room incident that caused Mongo to challenge Flair. Uh, The story apparently is that Flair, uh, you know, we have seen in, in weeks in the past that he has been going over to Deborah or cutting promos at her or offering her champagne. Uh, But apparently in the locker room in a segment, this isn't something that aired anywhere, so I shouldn't even say segment, in an incident uh, that that wasn't filmed or anything like that, Flair got, quote, physical with Deborah, but they never, they purposefully don't clarify what that means. Sure. Um, Bobby, you know, asks, like, did he kiss her hand? Did he, you know, did he touch her hair? What? And Bischoff's like, I I don't know. I've got no idea. That's a little weird. Yeah, it's, it's a, I don't, it's like they want to intimate that he... Like assaulted her, yeah, in, but like to they some degree, but they know they can't quite do that, yeah. So they're just really dancing around it as much as possible, and that's weird because you wouldn't think they need some kind of like escalating event like that, like just him kind of making passes at her every right. time she's in the crowd. You think handful of times, and that's just enough. All they needed to do was like like Bobby had guessed, like have one time when he goes over to have him kiss her hand. Mm-hmm. instead of you know and that should be in, that gives mongo enough easily for gives sure. mongo enough yeah for sure meanwhile a chop from eddie sends flair to the mat a fired up guerrero yells at him to get up and man i love when guerrero gets all fired up mm-hmm. that's that's the best eddie they trade blows before standing off and yelling at each other with great intensity <laughs> a test of strength offer from flair turns out to be a ruse as he kicks eddie in the gut they trade blows in the corner again until Eddie hits an Irish whip and then a back body drop on a stunned Flair. This is followed by a couple of drop kicks, the second of which sends Flair backwards over the top rope and out onto the floor. Flair purposely walks over to the VIP table, uh, which is once again the entrance. Uh, you know, he's had a, a table set up for a while where he sits with woman and Liz to watch matches. Like a long banquet table. Right. With, yeah, meat and fruit. And-, and he walks over there and Bischoff loses his mind. He goes... Uh, Guerrero sent sent Flair out looking for for a chair <laughs> as Flair grabs a chair. He's baffled by the fact that he would grab a chair of all things. Yeah, and, and I this is like I think for me like the best um like sort of storytelling um, moment of the match because um there there's like a phrase in basketball that they use that's um controlling the tempo. And this is a thing where like Eddie, you know, especially in the last couple of moments, like he was hitting a bunch of drop kicks and chops and really getting fired up and Flair just went out and took a breather and it's not only 
that you know Flair was just trying to stall his momentum, but like he basically looked like he was going crazy because he couldn't figure Eddie out. So he was just going to throw a chair in the ring either to hit him with it or maybe just to disrupt him or something like that. But I thought it was really cool and it seemed like it was really natural too. It wasn't just him kind of jerking his head, you know, over there and doing it. He, you know, it was a very measured response from him. So it's like, uh, you know, you're you're a much better basketball mind than I am, but you've got a close game or maybe even you're winning. And then all of a sudden they get on a, a run of six, you know, six, seven, eight points, and you call that timeout to just stop the momentum right there and exactly. hopefully just reset things to your own time. Yeah, or it, it's um, maybe almost like, do you know, like a hack-a-shack, you know? Like sure, if, yep. if another team yep. has momentum, just start intentionally fouling, like, their worst free-throw shooter just to disrupt them. It's yep. not, like, strategically something that mathematically even makes sense. But just like here with Flair, it's not like he's going to get a chair and hit a grill with it and win. It's just he wants to throw – throw a wrench in things and I thought that was good and it's really consistent with Flair's character too it also allows Flair to do uh something that he loves which is get heat from fucking around with the ref because <laughs> as he comes back to the ring he throws the chair into the ring but Randy Anderson gets in his face and shoves Flair uh and Flair shoves him back and then looks really pissed <laughs> and then Flair decides he wants to do it again so he kind of pushes Anderson again so Anderson shoves him again, and then Flair takes a few steps away and then jumps in the air and stomps his feet on the ground like a <laughs> toddler having a fit. Uh, he he just loves that, like, tantrum ref, like, interaction. He thinks that's so funny, and it, it is. It's great. I, I always love it. Yeah, I love him shoving a ref that's done nothing wrong. <laughs> that, that's just a classic heel tactic. Yeah, I mean, he's been in the business for, you know, 20 years at this point, and he's, like, mad that they won't let him use a chair as if that's a surprise. <laughs> Uh, Flair talks a bunch of shit to the crowd and receives some solace from woman. As he gets back into the ring, Eddie kicks the chair to the outside, so the chair is not going to come into play here. The crowd is chanting for Eddie, which, though I love Eddie, is got to be more of a testament to Flair at this point. Sure. Um, Flair has really worked very hard to get him over, and the crowd does love Eddie, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but Flair is working his ass off to make them hate him. Oh yeah, the stall tactics, I'm sure, was just, you know, hit, probably him reading the crowd to a degree and... Um, trying to fire them up even a little bit more. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's a combination of the two because, you know, early Nitro Eddie Guerrero was the shit. Yes. But, but you know, it, it's also Flair taking a good thing and making it that much better, too. Flair is sent to the mat by a Guerrero shoulder block, and Eddie mounts Nate and unloads with punches. Flair gets hot and comes at Eddie uh, talking shit, so Eddie powders and taunts Flair from the outside with some uh, Nature Boy-like strutting. <laughs> Back in the ring, they lock up, and Eddie's chest is showing the wear and tear from all those chops earlier. In a corner, Eddie blocks a discus punch before getting Flair with a huge chop. Flair stumbles out of the corner before falling to the mat with a glorious Flair flop. Eddie approaches, and as Flair gets to his feet, he gets Eddie with an eye gouge. Eddie is in pain as we go to commercial with Bobby defending the move as a Greco-Roman thumb to the <laughs> eye. Bischoff thought that was the funniest thing, <laughs> He too. really did. That was the best. <laughs> After the commercial, uh, we see that Flair now has Eddie in a headlock, which Eddie fights out of with some elbows to the gut. So back and forth action sees Eddie get a couple of clotheslines before going up to the top rope. He comes down for a top rope sunset flip, but Flair doesn't fall back, and Eddie pulls his tights for extra leverage. I don't feel like Flair knew that was coming as he stands punching Eddie for another second or two mm -hmm. before falling back. And, you know, the, the spot where... Flair's pants get pulled down by a sunset flip. That's been done a million times. Right. It just seemed like he didn't expect it this sunset flip. Sure, sure. Maybe, maybe it's never happened off a top rope move before. <laughs> uh, that only gets a two count, and Eddie then goes for ten punches in the corner, but after two, Flair gets him down with an atomic drop. 
Flair hits a standing elbow drop for a two count, and then another as uh, Eddie is selling being very hurt by that atomic drop, I guess. Yeah, he's selling the leg there, something that I don't think uh, Bischoff ever picks up on. But Now firmly in control, Flair hits a rolling knee and woos at the crowd. They go back to trading chops and punches. At one point, Flair chops Eddie down, and Eddie kips up and knocks Flair down with a punch. Uh, rather than kip up himself, Flair kicks Eddie in the face. <laughs> it's hilarious because awesome. they're doing the thing where they keep like their their kind of like knuckles engaged, like a Greco Roman you know uh, knuckle lock or mm-hmm. whatever the hell they call it. And uh, you know they use that for leverage to kip up. And Eddie does his, and then they knock Flair down, and Flair still has it. So it looks like he's going to use the leverage. <laughs> so they really set it up like it's going to mirror it. But no, he kicks him in the yeah, face. Two and it's, feet right to the face. Oh, it's so like <laughs> that's the essence of wrestling right there. Like a baby face doing a physical athletic thing to make you cheer, and then a heel inverting that into a dastardly attack. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> a nature boy hip toss is blocked and reversed into a backslide by Eddie, but it only gets a two. Eddie tries for an inside cradle for another near fall. After some more back-and-forth action, Flair gets a side suplex that keeps both men down for a bit, so Randy Anderson starts the standing 10 count. Flair is first up to his feet, so he goes to lock on the figure four, but Eddie turns this into another inside cradle, although this time they are way too close to the ropes. I mean, Flair's, Flair's like, legs are, like, scrunched up by the ropes, <laughs> and Randy Anderson still stupidly counts two. Yeah, it's like- another case <laughs> of referees being in terrible position to count pins. Flair is up as Eddie recovers on all fours. Uh, Flair tries to punt Eddie's head off, but Eddie avoids it and grabs the kicking leg, taking the kicking leg, taking Flair down. Guerrero hangs onto the leg and puts on his own figure four. Flair writhes in pain but manages a rope ba- break relatively quickly. Flair heads to the outside and Eddie tries to nail him with a top rope plancha, but Flair dodges and Eddie hits the metal metal guardrail. Flair smells blood in the water and suplexes Eddie onto the gym mats. Back in the ring, Eddie is on his feet but struggling to regain mental composure. Flair comes at him with a shoulder block to the back of his knee. Flair then gets a suplex for a two count. Eddie is now almost completely out of it, and Bischoff starts putting over what an amazingly tough competitor he is. Uh, The crowd is starting to chant for Macho Man. Flair goes for a side suplex, but Eddie flips all the way over and lands on his feet. Eddie goes for an O'Connor roll for two uh, and follows up with a crossbody for another two. Eddie with some chops in a corner before he whips Flair into the opposite corner, where Flair goes up and over before being sent to the floor by an Eddie dropkick. Eddie fetches him and rolls him back into the ring. Guerrero tries flipping back into the ring with a sunset flip, but Flair stays upright this time and punches Eddie for his impertinence. Flair styles and profiles a bit before getting Eddie up for some chops. This time it's Eddie who hits a thumb to the eye before a nice tornado DDT for a two count. Eddie grabs Flair's hand and goes to the top rope and walks two or three very shaky-looking steps before coming off for Hurricanrana. More good selling by Eddie. It's not him losing his balance, but the leg being weakened by Ric Flair's attacks. It's more good stuff. Eddie gets a scoop slam and goes up for a frog splash. He hits it, but hurts his right knee on impact. Flair manages to recover and locks on the figure four. Eddie briefly blocks it, but Flair is too much for him uh, with the injuries that he's been selling throughout the match. After being in the hold for a while, Eddie ends up with his shoulders down, and as Woman holds Flair's arms for leverage, Randy Anderson counts the 1-2-3 for a Nature Boy victory after a 20-minute barn burner of a match. Absolutely. I thought this match was very, very good. Uh, I know that Dave, uh, when he watched this episode, he texted me. He thought that this was the perhaps the best match we've seen on Nitro. Um, There's a couple more that I like more, namely uh, Johnny B. Bad versus uh eddie guerrero yeah i like that one a <laughs> that lot one too. was amazing and uh that one's notable in this case because that was a 10 minute time limit draw 
and this match was allowed to go 20 minutes. So I don't know what happened to the time limit. This is the longest match on Nitro to date, which makes wow. sense because it's a 90-minute show, uh, so they had a little more room to breathe this time. Uh, I thought it was a great match, maybe not the best I've seen on Nitro, but fabulous. Uh, what about you? Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, it's it it just shows um, what the strength, you know, the strength of the performer that Ric Flair is. Um, not that, like, he carries Eddie Guerrero here. I, I don't think that's um, accurate to say, but he has a, an in-ring character that works with anybody. And um, I think what we've touched on in the past before, too, is having woman on the outside of the ring is just such a great enhancement for him. Like her shrieking every time someone hits a move or gets a hold on Ric Flair. Yeah. Um, it, it's great. And and these two. And also, Liz was there. I <laughs> I don't think I have a single note on her actually being there. Are you sure? Uh, she came out in the entrance and then <laughs> vanished into the hedges like a Homer Simpson backing up. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> But no, overall, I agree. This is definitely the best match. It's the best match I can remember on Nitro in, in a while, anyway. And it, it's it, no surprise from these guys. Let's now go to an audio clip as Gene Okerlund is with Flair and the ladies at the VIP table. And uh, Flair has some messages for the Macho Man. All right, I thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, I'm joined right now at this VIP table here. You've got some very, very nice... Uh, Treats, if you will, great food, a little Dom Perignon, woman, Miss Elizabeth, and the nature boy, Ric Flair. I should point out for the record, I have heard that somewhere in this building is Randy Savage. Listen, listen, these people know it too. Don't, I'm just telling you the way it is. Well, I've been told that he's in town, but he's locked up in jail because he tried to break up another evening with me and the girls. Macho man, I'm teaching your wife a new way of life, brother. That's a little heavy. Let's try to stay away from that subject. We could talk about some other things. You know, you stuck your foot in your mouth last night at Slamboree. Oh, I did. Yes, I, you did. I knew, I knew, Mean Gene, you'd seize the opportunity to try and humiliate the Nature Boy with the all pro defensive tackle, Steve McMichael, whose wife follows me around like I owe her money. McMichael, the reason you're not here tonight it's because I had the enforcer out here and you ran scared. And let me just say something. McMichael, Kevin Green, Green, you made two mistakes already. The first was coming into North Carolina without asking my permission. The second was thinking you could cross train football and wrestling like I cross-trained the girls. It don't work that way. I happen to have the enforcer by my side. Yep. And in Baltimore, there's going to be two former NFL stars because, Green, you ain't going to make minicamp, buddy. <laughs> Put it in the bank. It's as good as gold. 
All right, I thank you very much. That match is going to be coming up. So uh, you can kind of hear, I, I might have cut it off a little early for you to hear, uh, but Flair actually ends that promo by grabbing the champagne off the VIP table and heading to the announce booth, as he is now going to be joining commentary for the rest of the show. Uh, and if you just have any doubts about the level of performer he is, he just did a 20-minute <laughs> match, cuts a great promo immediately after, and then heads to do commentary. Uh, for the next 45 minutes. Right. Yeah. It's. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, I actually, this match just came to mind as I watched um, Payback, WWE Payback, mm -hmm. uh, which, as we know, was several weeks ago and certainly not last <laughs> night. <laughs> uh, but Kevin Owens, great match with Sami Zayn, sure. immediately cuts a promo and then heads to commentary. Yeah. And I was I, like, I oh, man, he's connection. doing the Ric Flair special yeah. right here. And there's very few guys, uh, certainly CM Punk comes to mind. Sure. Um, very few guys who can pull that off. Um, even like Cena, who I, I'm not a huge Cena guy, but uh, certainly he can have a great match. He can do a good promo. Um, but I've never seen him like shine on commentary particularly. You know what I mean? Sure. Or like do a great post-match promo. Ever, right. Unless there's one I'm not really thinking of. But And that's a different skill because a promo is a speech and commentary is – an improvised conversation. Right and, right. and I'm not knocking, you know, I'm not turning this into a cheap excuse to knock Cena. Um, and maybe he's a great improviser, but it seems like that's just a different part of your brain. And the flares have it. The Kevin's Kevin Owens has it. The CM punks have it. Very, very few guys, including very top guys have that skill. No, I agree that flair is probably the only guy in this roster. Maybe like Arn Anderson is another guy who probably could do it, but Flair is probably the only guy on this roster that's really going to be able to do it well. We then go to a commercial with a promo that next is going to be the Faces of Fear versus Sting and Luger. And as we come back, Flair is indeed on commentary, and uh, we get a shot of the commentary table and see that the VIP food and candelabras have now been moved <laughs> over to the announce table. This is hilarious. Yep, and uh, you get uh, Flair saying, Bobby, you could touch the grill, but Bischoff, hands off. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby uh, spends most of the shot like struggling mightily to light the candles on the mm -hmm. candelabra. He's really having trouble, <laughs> but he does he does get him eventually. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, that brings us now to the Faces of Fear versus Sting and Lex Luger for Sting and Luger's tag team titles, and here to call all of the action is our own John Amatorp. Okay, and just a brief disclaimer: um, don't unsubscribe from this podcast because of my dry play by play. <laughs> Uh, this is a limited speaking engagement, and uh, moving forward, you'll get more from more uh, natural storytellers like Tim and Dave. <laughs> um, so, let's see. We get to, uh, the Faces of Fear come to the ring as uh, Bischoff and Heenan are talking about the main event of uh, Sting and the Giant from Slamboree the night before. Uh, they mentioned that you know not only did Sting take just you know a hell of a beating from the Giant, you know the the biggest, most impressive guy in wrestling, but he also took that shot at the end, you know, right to the face of the megaphone. So they're wondering if he's going to be 100%. Flair's kind of chiming in saying that he thinks Sting's like the best natural athlete in WCW, but even he doesn't think Sting's coming to this thing 100%. Um, he also, Flair also, uh, I think, I'm having trouble interpreting my notes here, <laughs> uh, but does Flair say something about Liz having eyes for Lex Luger? Yeah, yeah. Because um, that kind of goes back to a match that they had, uh, Flair versus Lex, where... 
Liz was kind of giving eyes. I think it was a tag match of some kind, but Liz was giving eyes to Luger during the match. Woman kind of got mad at her, and it almost seemed like a natural moment, not something that was planned for the characters. Sure. Um, so I, I kind of like that bit of continuity there that Liz has this like secret crush on Lex Luger. Yeah, long-form storytelling <laughs> from Ric Flair and absolutely <laughs> nobody else in the company at this point. Yeah, he he makes some comment where uh like Lex or uh Liz is gawking at Lex when he like uh does like make it makes his pecs bounce. Right. Yeah. Right. No, no, that, that's funny though. Um. Uh. So yeah, we get Sting and Luger coming out. Um. They you know take turns flexing and screaming into the camera, and Lex has both his tag team title and the TV championship, which you know he's flaunting as if he just won the lottery and holding it up as a as a trophy, and. It's about as enthusiastic as I can imagine a TV champion ever um, flaunting a belt like that, especially you know on a night where he's not even defending it. Mm-hmm. So we get uh, Luger and Meng starting out. They tie up, and uh, Meng you know backs him into the corner. He's lighting him up with a couple huge chops to the chest. Lex Luger comes back with a shoulder tackle and then a big power slam for only a one count. Uh, Meng recovers and back suplexes Luger before tagging in the Barbarian. Uh, Luger creates some space just by shoving the Barbarian to the side and tags Sting in as we get a commercial break. Um, and <laughs> as we go into commercial, we get Ric Flair singing. I don't know if you caught that, but uh, he was singing like, where, where is McMichaels now? And <laughs> it, it, It's good stuff. It's, I mean, you know, he's had 20 minutes to work on that champagne, so I'm sure that's kind of where that's coming from. Is it pre or post commercial? I've got uh, w- one thing I really like Flair did on commentary during this match um, and it's, I guess, not great commentary because it's not at all about the match going on in front of him, mm-hmm. um, but it's all about his upcoming match at the Great American Bash against McMichael and Kevin Green. Uh, but Flair points out that he has uh, victories over Wahoo McDaniel and Ernie Ladd, who both played pro football. Oh, yeah, he uh, mentions he retired Ernie Ladd, which I didn't even know. But. I didn't know that either, and, and Ladd was probably one of the more famous – uh, NFL slash wrestlers, you know, he played for the Chargers, I want to say it was, um, Big Cat, Ernie Ladd, and, and had a pretty successful uh, wrestling career as well. So it was smart of Flair to think of specifically football guys that he has pinned yeah, uh, to show that he's not afraid of, of Kevin Green and, and McMichael. Or is he insists on calling him McMichaels. Uh-huh, that's the best. <laughs> yeah, that uh, Flair's got some other moment. I, I don't know if it's around that same time, but he mentions how after he beats Kevin Green at um, Great American Bash, he's going to take over as linebacker for the Panthers. Yeah, he's, the like, Panthers are just going to sign him. Yeah, yeah, he says Arn Anderson's going to win the world title. Rick Flair's going to take over the Panthers. <laughs> that, that's good stuff. Uh, Sting counters a double wrist lock by the Faces of Fear with a backflip and then arm drags them both down, which is a cool-looking spot. Uh, he then whips a barbarian into the ropes and initially goes for like a bear hug or something. I think he might have might have missed what his spot was supposed to be there. So he throws him back in the ropes and then does the big sting miss drop kick spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, barbarian recovers and tags in Meng, who applies some kind of variation like the sort of the lion tamer Boston crab hold uh, before stopping sting. I think dropping a headbutt on him and tagging the barbarian back in. Uh, we got frequent tags from the Faces of Fear, which is um, it's cool and it's very welcome in a WCW that um, at this time has a lot of teams just kind of thrown together. So there's definitely tag team continuity there, and, and we'll see later on with Luger and Sting as well. Uh, Meng is back in the ring, drops Sting into an atomic drop, and the Barbarian comes back in with a double team with a huge big boot to the face. Loved that move. Yeah, I, I'd never seen them great. do it before. Yeah, and... 
and he ca- it from the angle it looks like he catches Sting pretty flush on the side of the head. So that that's good stuff. And like I said, I mean, um, you know, the faces of fear not only is their continuity great, but when they're in the ring with guys that will complement who they're what kind of characters they're supposed to be, they can be really really strong performers. And I think they get good reactions out of the crowd too, where they don't necessarily work with like a team like the Road Warriors that has to throw their opponents around, but. Uh, Sting and Luger guys that are good at, at taking a beating from the heels um, are, are a good fit in the ring against the faces of fear. Um, so we get the uh, the double team, uh, Big Boot from the Barbarian, who goes for the pin, and Luger comes in to break it up. Um, up to this point, I think we only have one tag from Sting and Luger, and a lot of Luger just kind of standing on the outside, uh, not intervening much, um, but not really getting involved in the action at all. Uh, the Barbarian... Props Sting on the top rope following this and throws him off with a great-looking top rope belly-to-belly suplex. It's um, a little like um, the movie you'd see Kurt Angle do, except he just climbs the rope slowly and heaves him. It looks fantastic. It and really it's, does, It's yeah. not a move I've ever seen the Barbarian do, and I wasn't at all expecting, but looks great. Um, we get another cover from the Barbarian, another uh, kick out on a long two by Sting. And then following this, the Barbarian drags Sting into the middle of the ring, tags in Meng, and they go for a double top rope headbutt, crush him. Their timing is fantastic. And we get another cover by Meng this time and another kick up by Sting at two. Sting battles back then and goes for a leaping tag to Luger, but Meng catches him kind of in that uh, atomic drop hold and uh, puts him in another atomic drop. Heenan at this point speculates that Luger maybe alligator armed the tag a little bit and he wasn't really reaching out all the way for Sting and maybe it's because they still got some hard feelings from the night before. But Heenan's definitely saying Luger could have gotten the tag there and didn't. Yeah, uh, that certainly played up a little bit by the announcers. I don't see it from Sting and Lex. Like, no, I don't at all. They seem to be on the same page. No hard feelings about last night. Yep. Like. It's all, it's all announcer speculation getting thrown in there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and honestly, I think they probably influenced me a little bit, too. I, I don't think Luger is really necessarily avoiding getting in the ring at all. I think it's just Faces of Fear very effectively have the ring cut off. I agree. Um, and th- this is one of the cases where, um, you know, Luger, when he's defending the TV title on his own, basically plays a straight-up heel. But when he's with Sting, he's more or less a straight-up babyface unless he's cheating at the end to win. Yep. Um. And the cheating that he w- he's been doing that less and less over the past I'd say month or so. That's good. Um, so Barbarian goes to the top for another headbutt. Sting rolls out of the way, and we get the same spot where he's going for a leaping, almost like a stinger splash type move, trying to get the tag. And this time he gets Luger in the ring. Uh, Lex is a house of fire. He's uh, back body dropping, clothesline in the faces of fear. Luger hits the loaded forearm smash on the Barbarian. Meng breaks up the pin. This leads to. Uh, Donnie Brook, we get uh, all four men uh, battling. On the outside of the ring, Luger whips Meng into the ring post as Barbarian set and Sting up for another top rope move, presumably another great-looking top rope belly-to-belly. This time, Luger sneaks up behind, holds on to Sting, and pushes the Barbarian who falls. Sting leaks, leaps off the top rope and flattens him with a top rope splash, and then Luger excitedly sneaks in the ring and steals the pin for a successful title defense. Hey, there they go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like I said, um, I thought this was a good match. Um, my just my memory of the Faces of Fear, I thought they were they were kind of boring. But um, watching them back again, I mean, I I really like them. I think they're an effective 
team as far as their teamwork. And this match puts over Sting and Luger, kind of helping them build momentum for you know the next the coming weeks. Yeah, face to fear, they've only appeared on one prior episode of Nitro, and thus one prior episode of our show. Uh, I want to say you were on that sh- episode, were you not? Do you remember? I think I was. Yeah, because I think they were a, a new team. And yeah, yep. they hadn't really been introduced, and we were a little surprised that they had a name for them and everything like right, that. Right, yeah. right. And both episodes, I I'm kind of with what you were just saying. I've been pleasantly surprised at mm-hmm. how much I've enjoyed watching them, the Barbarian especially. Yeah, um, yeah. And Meng was someone who I found very boring. Um, for the first few months of this podcast um, and, and of Nitro, but he has really shown a lot. Um, this tag team has been a good thing for him, absolutely. Yeah, Meng definitely isn't a very um, exciting singles wrestler, but he's a guy who fits right in for the big kind of bruiser, brawling tag team. That's a great fit for him. In the commentary booth, Bischoff warns uh, Flair that Macho Man is outside the building and trying to chew his way in. We then go to... Uh, we go. <laughs> We then go outside the arena as Mean Gene is standing by as Macho Man stalks around being warned by uh, cops who are standing watch. This time, at least, it is at night, uh, whereas last time he was banned, it was clearly filmed <laughs> in the middle of the day. Uh, so I don't know if it's genuinely live, but it is at least they at least waited till dark out. Okerlund tells Macho Man that the WCW Executive Committee is meeting right now to decide what's to be done with the Macho Man. Macho wants Gene to warn those in the meeting to be real careful with what they do regarding his future. Uh, it's it's very much the same segment that we've seen before. Macho on the outside wanting to get in, playing this uh, sort of unhinged persona. You know, it's kind of notable. Um, Macho Man, I would. This is going to sound insane, but Macho Man is doing here over these with this character that he's doing right now, sort of what Austin would be doing. Sure. Yeah, uh, a, a couple years later, and I don't think anyone would have ever thought to credit Macho Man was sort of paving. And it's not necessarily that because he did this, the Austin character directly flowed from it. Far, sure. far be it for me to suggest that, but but really, the Aust- a lot of what Austin does is an echo of this Macho Man character that was kind of being done uh, here in '96. Yeah, totally unhinged, and and with Randy Savage, you obviously totally buy it, knowing yeah, everything we know being about Being handcuffed, being let off, by, but being a baby face at the Absolutely. same time. yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, it's just kind of interesting, the parallels there. Yeah, and something interesting, too, is uh, in, in the segment, Mean Gene mentions uh, that Randy Savage uh, has a fine coming, and he says that uh, it's going to, uh, compared to fines to Magic Johnson, Dennis Rodman, and Albert Bell, um, those fines will pale in comparison to Randy Savage's. So I did a little... We'll work on that. So Magic Johnson, two weeks before this show, gets a $10,000 fine for bumping an official during an NBA game. This was during Magic's, like, he had one comeback year after yep. you know, um, he got di- diagnosed with AIDS. Um, I remember that. I remember it being such a big deal. Like, are players going to be worried about being next to it? It's like, I don't know. Have they received rudimentary HIV <laughs> education? Like. Yeah, and uh, 20 years of Nitro podcast favorite Carl Malone actually said that he didn't want to play against Magic because he was afraid of hurting him because he didn't know how ah, delicate he would be. That's at least a – I mean, that still just needs a little more education, but yeah. that's at least a, a better-hearted reason is he was in the right place. For sure, for sure. So, yeah, so um, as far as scale, they're saying that the fine is much bigger than Magic Johnson's $10,000 fine. That's okay. not surprising, man. Okay. Randy Savage's behavior. Albert Bell's fine. Oh wait, hang uh, on. I want because I think I remember this one. Okay, he spit on an umpire. 
maybe that's not what this oh, was. Oh wow, that was so, he definitely did that at some point. Oh, I I don't doubt that at all. But <laughs> Albert Bell, um, I guess lit into a reporter, um, uh, now ESPN's uh, Hannah Storm. Um, oh, I yeah, guess he I know yeah he, he lit her up for going into the locker room after a game, not knowing that she had an interview planned with another member of his team. Albert Bell is fined fifty thousand dollars for that incident. Oh wow. Dennis Rodman, another 20 years of Nitro podcast favorite. This is the fine that puts Randy Savage's predicament, uh, you know, gives us a little scale for it. So Dennis Rodman, about three weeks before this, uh, got a $20,000 fine for headbutting an official during a game. In addition to a six-game suspension and lost salary for that, total fine $200,000. Wow. So Randy Savage's fine dwarfs those that's gonna be quite a fine yeah and i think from what eric bischoff has said that's probably more than what randy savage's actual salary was that year <laughs> so so they're not m- messing around in the uh the executive committee they want to send a strong message that they gotta, <laughs> gotta keep the wrestlers in line bischoff then sends it to commercial and thank you by the way very much for those <laughs> that's fascinating absolutely the rodman one um i think you you, you weren't there that week the rodman one they literally cut in. Well, they didn't cut in, but Bischoff announced live on Nitro. He like it was breaking, and he he made it sound like he was breaking the story uh-huh. that uh, Rodman was being fined for that headbutt. There you go. Uh, so he and they've he's mentioned Rodman as like a um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Uh, just he's he's used Rodman as an analogy for uh, how Savage is going to get fined sure. and stuff for a few weeks now. Sure. Like I said, though, Bischoff sends it to commercial as Flair cackles uh, <laughs> at the fate of the Macho Man. In our commercial, we once again get some Blood Runs Cold promotion. Uh, so what we've been doing on the show, John, uh, we've been talking about Blood Runs Cold, and each week I read you what the uh, the speculation has been that week in the Wrestling Observer. Fantastic. Yes, so last week uh, you may remember, uh, listeners of the show, that it was... Uh, that three babyface ninjas were going to join WCW, one of whom would be Brian Clark, uh, Adam Bomb from sure. WWF. Uh, so what we get this week, Brian Clark denies that he's going to WCW as part of Blood Runs Cold. There were also rumors that Hakushi would be part of the three-man team, and I'm pretty sure that isn't the case either. The only name I know for sure as part of the three-man force is David Ashford Smith, who was last in WCW a few years ago as Yoshi Kwan, who is better known in the independents as Chris Champion. Hmm. So that is our current speculation <laughs> as to what is meant by the Blood Runs Cold promos. Following that, Brad Armstrong, who we've seen once on Nitro before, makes his way out to the ring, and he is followed by our old friend Diamond Dallas Page, who is wearing some awesome new pink gear. Mm-hmm. His old gear was garbage. It was so terrible. I love this new pink gear. Uh, and I have a question for you as, as someone who is more familiar with WCW at the time. Let's do it. He comes out to some music. It is obviously uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit ripoff. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't tell on the WWE Network if this was the actual uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit ripoff. I don't or think if this so. was a new. No, nope, this was a, a this ripoff, was a ripoff. Of a ripoff. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Diamond Dallas Page's new gear because, you know, the the kind of angle they've been running in the, the previous few months, especially on Saturday night, is he was selling his, his gear to jobbers because he was, like, in deep with uh, loan sharks or something, something yeah, like he that. Yeah, was, he, was, he lost all his money to Johnny B. Bad and that's Kimberly. That's right, that's right. 
He lost all his money to them. Uh, then he lost an I Quit Wrestling match at Uncensored. Uh, then he was allowed back in through a loophole. Uh, and when he came back in, uh, the loophole is exploited by a, quote, New York lawyer <laughs> who is paid for by his mysterious benefactor. And we have not learned who that is. I don't know if we ever will. I don't know if that angle is going anywhere. Uh, but he is a mysterious benefactor. And presumably that is who paid for these fantastic new uh, pink tights. Oh, see, I thought he was uh, immediately cashing in on the success of Battle Bowl the night before. <laughs> he even uh, has like the regal, like kind of uh, white, uh, you know, uh, like the white trim. Yeah, yeah, he's got yeah. The, the, yeah, he's got a nice pink Majestic vest, and the trim, inside yeah. of the vest is like a silky white color. It looks great. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. So here to call all of the action on Diamond Dallas Page versus Brad Armstrong is our own John Amantor. Oh, baby. Yeah. So as you mentioned, uh, Brad Armstrong coming in strong out uh, commercial break. This is actually a, a pretty big like two day stretch for him because the night before he had the uh, the cruiserweight title match against Dean Malenko and. Well, you know, Dean Malenko obviously doesn't have many peers in the ring. Um, Brad Armstrong keeps up with him, and that's uh, that's a, a pretty good compliment in itself. Um, so we get Armstrong to the ring, then Diamond Dallas Page, like you said, he's got he's got fantastic looking new gear. Um, and Bischoff and Heenan mentioned that he came out of relative obscurity to win the Battle Bowl, and as a result of that victory, now has a contract to face the world champion in June, which is presumably at the Great American Bash pay per view. To open the match, they exchange a couple of hammer locks. We get to a lot of the the classic, uh, you know, heel stalling tactics from Diamond Dallas Page, getting in the ropes, um, stepping back and jawing with the audience, things like that. Uh, he gets the crowd actually pretty riled up. Um, he, I think, naturally plays a very good heel. Um, after Page finally steps in, we get an arm drag from Brad Armstrong as uh, Bischoff, you know, uh, puts over Armstrong's really solid match with Malenko the night before. Um, Page takes control with a series of these really weird-looking pinning combinations, like sort of like schoolboy rolls up, roll-ups, and cradles and things like that. But he doesn't really hook Armstrong very well. It's just sort of holding him down. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and and obviously, you know, Page d- he doesn't have a, a reputation as being like an, a trained amateur wrestler or anything like that. So this stuff is weird, especially because I think Brad Armstrong was. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, um, so after a couple of weird pinning combinations, uh, Brad Armstrong counters with a flying mare and then a dropkick that takes Diamond Dallas Page out of the ring. As Page hits the ring apron, Eric Bischoff announces that starting next week, Nitro will become a two-hour show uh, running from 8 to 10 Eastern time, which is in preparation for big things WCW has, has planned. Um, I don't think we otherwise had any sort of promotion for this, but this essentially is going to mean that WCW will have an unopposed first hour uh, leading up to Raw, and then will compete for the full second hour, which is Raw's entire show at this time. Yeah, and presumably you put on a like a two main events each night. You put on one main event right as Raw is starting, mm-hmm. you know, to just make sure that people don't turn it over, and then you put on a main event at the end of the show to counter Raw's actual main event. So Yeah, but this uh, obviously speaks to the, the success Nitro's had ratings-wise, the additional faith that Turner Broadcast had in, in Eric Bischoff, and, you know, WCW really kind of ramping up their plans to gather more of a foothold in being one of the top two promotions in the U.S. So moving to two hours is very big for the show. 
Uh, so Paige out on the apron suckers Brad Armstrong in by pulling him down neck first over the top rope. I think that's called like a hangman. And he follows it up by getting in the ring, getting a swinging neck breaker on him as we go back to commercial. Back from commercial, Paige has got a headlock on Armstrong, and he tries to, um, and Armstrong is trying to get back into the match. He maneuvers Paige over with a backslide for a two count, and Paige pops up and just rocks Armstrong with a big clothesline for a two count. Paige follows this up uh, by charging into the corner, but missing and slamming his shoulder into the ring post. Armstrong goes to work by smashing Paige's head into the turnbuckles. He gives him the, the 10 turnbuckle slam, including the last two on the bottom turnbuckle and then one on the ring mat as well. That's more uh, just, just classic um, you know, 80s heel work from Diamond Dallas Page, just making, making the other guy look like a million bucks. Uh, and at this time, as uh, Brad Armstrong is gathering momentum, Ric Flair calls Brad Armstrong one of the very best wrestlers in the world, which is high praise from, at this time, maybe the best wrestler in the world himself, Ric Flair. Absolutely. Uh, Armstrong comes out the top rope with a flying body press for a two count. Um, then after they get up, Paige stuns him with a back elbow, hooks him, drops him with a diamond cutter, and gets the clean one, two, three after a brief rally from Brad Armstrong. After the match, uh, Page gets his battle bull ring back on from Nick Patrick as Ric Flair declares, I kind of like this guy. <laughs> DDP also gives himself a self-high five, which uh, becomes a staple of the character. And I believe, and and uh, I may be wrong because, we, you know, we started this podcast and we've only really covered Nitro and I don't have a ton of early 90s WCW experience. Mm-hmm. I believe this is the debut of the self high five. I don't think he was doing that in the prior incarnation of the character. I with, don't think so. I think diamond right. doll and all that. Yeah. I think it was basically, yeah, it was after he came back with the benefit of the, the mysterious uh, benefactor. I think is when he started that self high five stuff. Uh, we now go to an audio clip as mean gene is in the ring with DDP who gets a chance to cut a nice little promo. Get some comments. Very impressive here tonight. And of course, it's Lamborghini. Hey, snap her head. Zip it. Last night, Diamond Dallas Page, bang, shocked the world. Good God. In the lethal lottery contest, the best of the best. Flair, Macho, Luger, Steiners, Road Warriors, Sullivan, Double A, Fire and Ice, Barbarian, Ming, need I go on? But when it was all said and done, there can only be one. Yeah. And that was DDP standing in the middle with the ring, the new Lord of the Rings. And I got one person to thank. My self. Self high five. All right. Shut up, you Di- jerks. Diamond Dallas. Which brings me to my next agenda. The G-Man. Wow. Wait a minute. The seven-footer. Giant boy, you're mine. You're wearing something oh, that's mine. Oh, right. Just come a on, second. Page. I want you to listen to what I have to say. Uh-oh. Diamond, please, come over here. What? I just got off the telephone. I just got off the telephone with the championship committee of WCW. They have informed me. They have viewed the videotape footage. I want you to take a look so now to our national television so audience because, yes, there's the diamond cutter. We're taking a look at that. And then Diamond Dallas Page... The executive committee, the championship committee, noticed that you got the pin with your foot on the floor. Now, now here, here's the story. 
Here's what? the story, my friend. They cannot take the Lord of the Ring away from you. The they will not reverse the decision of the referee. However, that was off the foot. I went over, skipped my foot off, right on the apron. That is footage. That is foul footage. That ball. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. They will not grant you the championship shot what? at the Giant at the Great American Bank. Are you kidding me? Hey, keep your hands Are you off kidding me. me. I'll walk out of here if you ever touch me again. They have awarded the shot to Lex Luger, ladies and gentlemen. He will be. Take care of this. Wow. I never want that man to put his hands on me. Get me a get me an officer up here. Lex Luger will get the shot on uh, June the 16th in Baltimore, Maryland. This guy is going bull here. Well, that, that is not my decision. Again, here I have to play the part. I'm only the messenger. Diamond Dallas Page, very, very upset indeed. Lex Luger, the recipient of a title shot at the wow. Great American Bank. So there you go. Uh, DDP cuts a promo, and then Gene drops the very confusing news that his championship shot has been revoked because, quote, he got the pin with his foot on the floor. <laughs> that doesn't make any fucking sense. What Gene means to say is that he got the pin uh, that won the match after he'd been tossed over the rope and his foot had touched the floor. So yep. me and Gene just completely botches that line, and DDP just kind of, he reacts to what Gene should have said mm -hmm. rather than what Gene did say. Right. Um, which is, I guess, the only thing you can do at that point. Yeah, and fortunately, we got uh, a good still from WCW showing Paige's one foot very clearly yes. on the floor. And it's a play of some kind on Shawn Michaels doing the same thing 18 months earlier, but clearly not as effective. Now, <laughs> and in case any of that's confusing to anyone, um, outside of WWE, Battle Royals uh, often have... You know, you can throw someone over the top. In WWE, a battle royal is only elimination by throwing over the top rope. In in other organizations, it's very common to have a battle royal where that is a form of elimination, but pinfalls and submissions also still count. Uh, Ultima Lucha in, in um, Lucha Underground operates this way, so anyone that watches that would be familiar with it. But So it is a battle royal, but Diamond Dallas Page had won with a pin over the Barbarian. Uh, so it's also very confusing why the title shot is then awarded to Lex Luger, he was not a part of the Lethal Lottery. Uh, he, he was in the Lethal Lottery, but he got knocked out in like the first match. Oh, you're right, because yeah, they went to uh, Road yeah. Warriors. And, so he lost yeah. in the first round. The Barbarian is the runner-up. Why right. doesn't the Barbarian uh, get the title shot? And after the Barbarian, I think it's Rocco Rock. So obviously he's, <laughs> he's got a beef with the championship committee as well. So that kind of sucks. Uh, also, it's notable. You know, I noticed during um, the pay-per-view, during Slamboree, Mike Tanay is brought on to do commentary during the Jushin Thunder Liger Conan match. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, Shivani, is putting over how important the. I don't know why I mentioned Mike Tanay. I, I thought it was him that said it, but it was actually Shivani now that I'm saying it out loud. Uh, Shivani makes the point that the United States champion is considered the number one contender for the heavyweight title, mm -hmm. which, for one thing, is blatantly false. Right. Uh, given right. everything that we've seen so far. Maybe at one point that was the case. It's not now, but whatever. The number one contender isn't the guy who almost won Battle Bowl. It's not the United States title or champion. Instead, it's just a guy who's in the tag team champions, uh, who's the television champion, <laughs> uh, but who lost in the Battle Bowl, and uh, it just doesn't make any a lick of yeah, sense. Yeah, I mean, storyline wise, the reason is that you know he they say he's won the costing the match, right? But it it, it doesn't. From a kayfabe perspective, it doesn't make any sense at all to make him the number one contender. Right, because they would only serve like to you know give some intrigue if he 
cost Sting the thing knowing he was going to get the title shot. Sure. But he would have had no way of knowing that costing Sting the title shot would have given he he didn't know that DDP a day later was going to have his title shot rescinded. Yeah. Or that the WWE or that the WCW executive committee would nonsensically give it to him. You know, there's no way he could have pre-planned that. Maybe Lex Luger knew that earlier on in the night, which is why he was hanging on the apron so much in that tag team match. What oh, do you think man. about that? Yeah, Just they're... preserving the, the total package? <laughs> After a commercial, out comes Arn Anderson to his awesome and unfortunately rarely heard theme. I love his theme song. Yep, for sure. He is accompanied, interestingly enough, by Kevin Sullivan, which confuses Bischoff as Sullivan is in the Dungeon of Doom, which of course counts amongst its members the Giant, who is Arn's opponent. Uh, Bischoff is stunned by this, but Flair indicates that he knew that there was some kind of secret plan in the works. <laughs> There's That's very important uh, through this match. There is some kind of secret plan involving Arn, Flair, and uh, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> Kevin Sullivan. Next out is the WCW World Heavyweight Champion, The Giant, along with his manager, Jimmy Hart. When they reach the ring, Hart asks Sullivan why he's there, and let's go to an audio clip as Kevin Sullivan explains. Listen, you know, listen. I'm in the dungeon. The only thing is, this guy has kept his word to me through the Pillman situation, now through the Benoit situation. Last night, Sting took him to the limit. All I want to make sure is that this man gets a fair chance because after all, you know, right over there, there's more horsemen. And you know, Jimmy, it's horseman style. I get it. I get oh, it. yeah, right. Truth and justice. So there you go. Sullivan uh, says in his droning nasal tone that Arn has always kept his word to the Taskmaster uh, through the situation with Brian Pillman, with the current situation with Benoit, who has not been getting along with Sullivan, he says that he is only there to make sure that Arn gets a fair chance. Before the bell, Flair wonders aloud what Eric will do when Flair leaves WCW to play for the Carolina Panthers, uh, who he speculates will sign him after he beats Kevin Green, <laughs> as John uh, mentioned earlier. I think that's how the NFL works. <laughs> uh, Arn starts off the match by bear-hugging the Giant from behind, but the Giant easily fights out of this and then drives his ass into Arn's chest. <laughs> They mosey over to a corner where Arn hits some shoulder charges and punches. Giant no-sells and then doesn't move a step when Arn tries an Irish whip. Instead, he uses one hand on Arn's forehead to send the enforcer across the ring, ass over tea kettle. Arn almost runs into a big boot but stops himself and subsequently fails to notice the giant coming up behind him. Giant nails a huge scoop slam. Giant whips Arn into the corner, but Flair is still confident mysteriously confident <laughs> the giant whips Arn into another corner he follows up with a back body drop and Arn rolls out of the ring jimmy hart and kevin sullivan watch the giant roll Arn back into the ring as some punk kid keeps pulling on jimmy hart's jacket and god i don't know how these guys do it how they just not punch that kid in the fucking mouth because uh, i didn't even know i wanted to punch my tv watching this <laughs> asshole you know as the giant steps over the top rope and back into the ring, Arn kicks it, hurting the giant's presumably giant balls. <laughs> Arn comes off the second rope with a double axe handle and then two more to bring the giant to his knees. Arn gets some punches before calling for the DDT. He gets the giant in position, but giant stands up and hits a choke slam for the win. Sullivan did nothing. Flair did nothing. Hart did nothing. What was the mysterious plan? Why were all of those things set up? 
Who knows? It doesn't matter. And it's not resolved whatsoever because pretty much as soon as the match is over, Ric Flair is just like, I got to go. It leaves. Yeah. And you don't see or hear from him again. (laughs) Ric Flair leaves the booth as the Giant celebrates with Jimmy Hart. The Giant screams into the camera about how nobody can stop him. Bischoff and Bobby talk about how the Giant will be champ for as long as he wants to. Bobby then leaves after stealing the candelabra and some of the food. (laughs) Bischoff plugs the fact that Nitro is going to be two hours next week and reminds us to stick around for the NBA as the show goes off the air. Uh, So talk about whatever the opposite of Chekhov's gun is. (laughs) Like, they introduce all these moving facets to this match, and then it's just a squash match with no cheating, no attempts at cheating, no manager interference, nothing. Yeah, and and no, no, like, real strategy by Arn Anderson either. He comes into it like any other, like he doesn't work, doesn't really work on the legs. He doesn't like poke him in the eyes all the time to disorient him or anything. He just treats it like any other match and just gets shellacked. I mean, yeah, I, it, it's I, very weird. I really don't know what the point of that was. Um, yeah, and it's weird because it's it's the main event and it's like a four minute match that ends clean as a whistle, and you don't understand why the Taskmaster had to be in it at all. Yeah, if you just wanted the Giant, he's a new champion, and you want him to just get an easy, uh, clean win, you know, throw throw Cobra out there. Throw, you know, uh, hard They've work Bobby before. Walker. Yeah. yeah. Who gives a shit? Just give him a jobber to eat like this. There's no reason to have it be Arn, and there's certainly no reason to imply like there's going to be this conspiracy to get Arn the championship that completely fails to materialize. Yeah, like, that's... it's not even that they fail. They don't even appear to be trying anything (laughs) for all intents and purposes it looks like you can actually take kevin sullivan at his word he was out there to make sure the match was fair ah the match was fair okay like uh, great i guess is the story that they had a plan and the giant just just ended the plan by winning the match so quick i mean mean, that's obviously yeah it's not what the the story they tried to tell we're gonna have the story that actually ended up happening we're gonna have to see in the long term and uh I don't have high hopes that there is long-term planning for any of that, but we'll see. Neither do I. I've been surprised before. In our Raw recap this week, the ringmaster, Steve Austin, defeated Mark Merrow uh, via DQ. Savio Vega defeated the 1-2-3 Kid. And Davey Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, fought Jake Roberts to a no contest. In our ratings recap, uh, Nitro, again, uh, this was, you know, they were out of their time slot for most for the first hour of the show. So Nitro pulled in a 2.3, whereas the unopposed Monday Night Raw did a 3.1. So here for the, for the 90 minute Nitro, so it started an hour early and basically only ran head to head with Raw for half an hour. That's that? right. Yep. And it must have been for whatever reason, the NBA playoff game must have had a weird start time. Yeah. Well, yeah, because TNT, um, I think during the playoffs generally will run double headers. So they, um, I think this is like Utah and Seattle or something like that. So Nitro has been airing an hour early for a while because mm-hmm. of the playoffs, but this is the only one that's been ninety minutes. Yeah, so. that obviously had to hurt him in the ratings because it's been killing him. Yeah, this is, this is actually slightly better than it has been. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I can say because Slamberia this year is one of the rare um, WWE pay per views I had on tape, so I, I remember the whole show pretty pretty specifically. And I can tell you, I don't think they did anything to promote this. As we move on to wrestling news, uh, do you have any idea what happened kayfabe yesterday? Uh, So that would be May 19th, 1996. What famous incident occurred on that day? No, no, you got nothing. You're shaking your head. All right. Well, if you don't have a guess, uh, I guess we will go to an audio clip that I think is going to make it very clear. 
On May 19, 1996, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were scheduled for their final appearance in an arena WWE called home, New York City's Madison Square Garden. Now we arrive in the garden, and it's really special for me because it's all over now. This is my last commitment to Vince, and I'm starting for the other company the next day. And I'm working with Hunter. There's Madison Square Garden. If there's any place in the world that the fans were the smartest and the fans were the most behind the scenes, they got it there. And after the match, they're going, you sold out. You sold out. And I'm going, you're right, I did. I felt like I sold out. I won that guaranteed money to secure my kids' future. The Garden crowd knew they would be saying goodbye to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash as WWE superstars. Relishing in the exposed reality, the clique would pull back the curtain like never before, bidding farewell to their friends and sports entertainment traditions. I said, man, it'd be great tonight. Since me and Sean are in a, a cage match, I said, you know, you guys are working before us. Why don't you guys come down? I'm summoned to Vince's office in the garden. And we talk, and as we're talking, Shawn Michaels comes in and he goes, hey, Vince, I want Razor and uh, Hunter to come out to the ring after the match. And Vince looked at him and says, is that what you want to happen? He said, yes. He goes, okay, then make it happen. Shawn super gives Kev in the cage, one, two, three, people explode. Now I come walking down the aisle. Then Sean came down and kind of like picked me up and kind of did the Betsy Ross thing there, you know. They had just got done fighting each other and they're in the ring together, like hugging and stuff, and they're kind of waving towards the curtain. And I was like, okay. And I went with him. Fans in attendance witnessed a once in a lifetime moment that would change the course of sports entertainment history. But traditionalists backstage failed to embrace what became known as the curtain call. Man, that's something you just don't do. Good guys and bad guys don't start hugging each other back in the day in Madison Square Garden. That's bullshit, man. understand how much those guys cared about each other. But you know what, man? You're on the grandest stage of them all, and you're going to piss on it? You're friggin' wrong, man. I remember, you know, sitting in the stands and thinking two different things. A, what the hell are those guys doing? I can't believe it. They're, they're, they're giving everything away. And then I thought, this is so cool, they're giving everything away. It was a cool moment, uh, a cool moment for the audience, those who knew. It wasn't a cool moment for me, um, 
when I saw that because I really didn't know what I was looking at. So I was upset. There were other individuals upset as well. I was in rehab at the time when the big curtain call incident happened. The only two people that were still left from the curtain call were Hunter and Sean. And uh, Hunter ended up getting buried. As I was driving to the office, I was like, man, well, how's this going to play out? Kevin's gone. Scott's gone. Kid wasn't there. Sean's champion. Got up to Vince's office, and, you know, it was, I know I kind of said, OK, but it became something I didn't think it was going to be. And now the image is out there. And if I don't do anything about it, it's chaos. There's got to be the punishment. And you, you know, it's on you. You're going to take a lot of for a long time. But I was determined I did the crime. I'm just going to do the time for it. Okay, so now I remember what that was. Um, you know, melodrama from the WWE Network aside, obviously one of the biggest days, I guess, in wrestling history. Yeah, that indeed uh, was the curtain call taking place on May 19, 1996 at Madison Square Garden. At an MSG house show, uh, Razor Ramon, a.k.a. Scott Hall, received boos and you sold out chants throughout his match with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. After the match, Razor got in the mic and say, say goodbye to the bad guy before the mic was cut off, as that was not a scripted part of the show. Diesel, a.k.a. Kevin Nash, received similar chants throughout his main event match, a cage match against Shawn Michaels. After the match, Diesel was laid out in the ring until Shawn Michaels gave him a kiss, and he popped up like everything was fine. Hall and Helmsley then joined them in the ring for hugs and click signals for all of the fans. The click is probably famous enough at this point that we don't need to recap their history in depth on here, uh, but needless to say that these four, along with an absent member, the 123 Kid, who is in rehab at this point, uh, have been a powerful and disruptive political force behind the scenes of the WWF. Aside from being outright dickheads who actively buried people to keep themselves on top, they certainly have fantastic minds for the business side of things and help show the wrestlers uh, how much leverage these, quote, independent contractors, end quote, actually have uh, the minute that even a small number of them begin to work together. So really, all the click, I mean, you a lot of the stuff the click did was awful. <laughs> yep. Um, and I think the more honest ones amongst them would admit that to some degree. Uh, but a lot of what they did was just show that, you know, why these fuckers need a union, you know? Oh, for sure. Why, when just a few of them go to, together to McMahon and say, we're big stars and you're doing this shit wrong and you need to listen to us, he will. He has no choice, you know? Um, so that's that's certainly been interesting. You know, as you can hear in the clip there, uh, they they say that Vince was aware of it. He just didn't know how big of a deal it was going to be. And certainly with uh, with Kid in rehab, with Sean as the WWF champion, with Razor and Nash leaving, uh, there was really no one else to catch shit other than Triple H and catch shit he did. Um, some of it we'll talk about as we continue our podcast. Uh, so so it's interesting to note. I you know it's a big historical thing. Uh, a very interesting note on that is that the Wrestling Observer initially focused on the power of the moment, uh, and about it apparently brought a lot of tears to the eyes of fans that were in the crowd. 
Uh, and this is a quote from the Wrestling Observer. Supposedly, this final display wasn't approved by WWF officials, but it got over great with audiences, so little will probably result from it. Hmm. I guess we'll see, huh? <laughs> However, there were other wrestlers who were very unhappy at what they considered kayfabe violations. And uh, we certainly heard in that audio clip uh, Steve Austin and Jake the Snake Roberts uh, give kind of the old you know view that that it was bullshit um you know i think the idea that they went out and wanted a curtain call might have been fine but the degree to which they went with it and then uh the fact that a a fan actually had snuck in and got it on videotape so this had become a moment that people were able to see um and actually on the the i think it's called the click rules which is a dvd they put out a little bit ago on the click documentary they actually reunited the click with the guys who had snuck in that camera and That's filmed cool. it. Yeah, those guys must have just blown their minds. Uh, that must have been so fun. So there you have it, the the curtain call. Uh, Scott Hall, it should be noted in there, he he says that he was going to show up on WCW the next day. Obviously, that didn't take place. We just covered the show. He wasn't on it. So my guess is his memory is just a little hazy. Uh, Scott Hall certainly has a number of reasons why his memory might be a little hazy. <laughs> Maybe. So I can't blame him for that. But he wasn't off by much. Uh you know, spoiler alert, but we, we've hinted and I think outright have said it a number of times, but next week is going to be the dawn of a whole new era uh, on WCW and here at the 20 Years of Nitro podcast. Uh, and a couple other wrestling notes, though. Uh, Chavo Guerrero, Eddie's nephew, who uh, is about the same age, got a Nitro tryout. Certainly a lot of you are going to know who Chavo Guerrero is, long stints in WCW, WWF, uh, WWE and uh, lucha underground currently and yokozuna uh, is back already uh, after leaving to lose weight you know we mentioned that on our april 8th raw bonus episode uh, in the intervening period he is reported to have lost about 30 pounds and that's according to himself that uh, would be a lot of weight in a month even for a bigger guy but yeah i guess uh, if your job's on the line i mean yeah yeah certainly i so hopefully, hopefully uh, he's on the way. That well, we know that he's not. I I don't know why I'm. <laughs> I'm not going to kayfabe it that hard in the podcast here. Uh, unfortunately, you know, any loss was was temporary at best in that yep. case. Uh, who for this episode of Nitro was your MVP? Well, I think this week's pretty easy. Um, it's Ric Flair, not only for being in the best match of the night, but also lighting it up when he got in the commentary booth. I thought he was fantastic. Yep. Uh, I, I don't think there can be any doubt if you uh, do a promo and a uh, if you cut a promo, do commentary and have a 20 minute Barbara match, you are definitely going to be the MVP of the show. No doubt about it. Uh, what about your match of the night? Uh, Flair and Eddie again. Um, you know, we touched on it to a degree, but storytelling psychology was great. The action was great. Um, they told the story from start to finish. And like you said, at longest and at this point, one of the best matches, you know, Nitro had had to date. You will get no argument for me. That was also my match of the night. Well, I think that about does it. What do you think of the episode overall before we sign off? Uh, overall, it's good. This is it's going to be an episode that's in a weird pocket between the really ridiculous, you know, Hulk Hogan and Dungeon of Doom feud, and obviously um, future storylines they have that would dominate the shows. This is a show that a lot of the time the action was going on in the ring, they were talking about the action as opposed to talking about the motivations of characters completely unassociated to it. But, you know, between this next week and the end of the show, you're not going to get much of that. 
So in that degree, it's it's an episode that's it's worth watching if you haven't seen it or if you, you just don't remember it because, you know, despite the antics of Ric Flair, um, they actually pretty much stay on point with these matches. So uh, it's, it's one I would definitely give pretty big thumbs up to. Yeah, I also thought the episode overall was good. Um, even some of the nothing matches like uh, Fire and Ice versus the Steiners was good. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a DDP versus Scott Armstrong. That was a good match. And it had a 20-minute, uh, you know, we haven't seen a match like that on Nitro before. Uh, so, yeah, hearty thumbs up from me as well. Uh, definitely an interesting little historical footnote as the last Nitro before the show changes dramatically. We will be here next week to see that dramatic change begin to unfold as the bad guy himself walks down the center aisle in the middle of the show. We are going to call that and all of the action right here where the big boys play 20 years of Nitro. He's poised, he is ready to pounce, he is quick as a cat, he is aggressive, and right now he has got the nature boy Ric Flair heading for a chair. 